just the the act of like making these pictures and showing something that like we tends to be ignored or hidden is a very powerful political statement. I'm Jordan Weitzman and you're listening to Magic Hour, my chance to talk with photographers and people involved in the medium. We learn about their backgrounds, thought processes, and ideas that have shaped their work. My guest on the show today is photographer Bryson Rand. Bryson's work engages with his experience as a gay man and speaks to a multitude of issues surrounding gay life today. Desire, shame, pleasure, violence, love, and empowerment are all made visible through his mysterious and inviting gaze. Bryson's work not only depicts a very personal sense of male beauty, but transcends his subjects as well, creating images that take on their own life and new meaning. Bryson earned his MFA from Yale University, and his work has been exhibited at the prestigious Franco Gallery in San Francisco and Regan Projects in LA. This month, he'll be showing an ongoing body of work called Some Small Fever in his debut solo show at La Mama Galleria in New York. We did this interview at Bryson's home in Brooklyn, where he lives with his husband Ryan and their dog Cassidy. As a kid, I was always into art. I mean, I loved art class and stuff, but I never really felt comfortable with any medium. Like, I was always self-conscious about my drawing skills. I can't really, like, build things with my hands. And I remember when I was, like, 10, I was really into National Geographic, and I was like, I want to be a National Geographic photographer, and I wrote, like, an essay about that. But then uh, at 15, we were living in Newport, Rhode Island, and my, funny enough, girlfriend at the time Mm -hmm. (laughs) was like... Oh, I'm going to take this after school photo class. You should join me. And I signed up for it and was just like immediately like the first roll of film that I developed and like picture that I processed. I was like, this is my, like, this is what I've been looking for basically. Um, and I think at the time making pictures was this very like immediate way to kind of give my side of the story and show my viewpoint on the world. Um, you know, growing up in a military family and being this sort of like sissy closeted gay kid mm-hmm. was really overwhelming. And taking pictures was sort of the way that like nobody could deny me anything in my pictures. You know, it's like I took the pictures, I decided what I wanted to show and it was, so it kind of gave me this ownership of my identity. And then from there, we moved to Virginia. I had like a really amazing photo teacher in high school for the, for the next like two years I was in high school. Um, and that's how it started. So, and, it was, so it was pretty, it was pretty early. Yeah. 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 Uh, but then, you know, it was like, I took a roundabout path. I, in college, like I went to university of Colorado and as like a stupid 18 year old, I didn't really know what to look for in a school. So just like, Oh, I'm going to go study photography. And the, the CU photo program was not great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I mostly took printmaking classes just as like, um, I took one as an elective and I was like, Oh, I really like this. It's very similar to like the process of photography. Um, and then after college I was like, I'm going to be a freelance photographer in New York and just like moved here thinking that you could just like do that and quickly realized that I didn't have the skills or the know-how or like the dedication to do that at that point. And so, you know, there was a long period of time in my twenties where I was just like, 
kind of making pictures, like still like really in love with photography, but not, not really harnessing like that love, like into making my own work. Mm -hmm. Um, and then when I started teaching in 2009, that's when I was like, really got back into making stuff. And then where'd you start teaching? Uh, so in 2008, I went to SVA and got my master's in art education. And then I was teaching elementary school art in the city. Uh, so I worked at a public school in Harlem and then I worked at a school in, uh, on, in the East twenties and just like being around my students and like seeing the joy that they got from creating things. Mm -hmm. I was like, Oh, that's right. Like (laughs) I kind of miss that. Right. And it's, that's sort of, you know, what pushed me back into, to making work more seriously just want to go back for a second because I'm curious about just a little more about your upbringing. So you you mentioned you're you're a military kid. Mm-hmm. You traveled around. Your, your your dad was in the military. Yeah. So my my dad's still actually in the Air Force. He's still active duty. What does he do there? Uh, he used to be an F-16 pilot. Wow. Uh, now he's a four-star general. Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly what he does, but it's four-star general. Yeah. Wow. Are you guys close now? We're pretty close. Yeah. Uh, you know, my dad actually, when I came out, he was the one person in my family who was like the most willing to like talk to me about it really? and like work through. I mean, you know, it was, it was tough going for a while with my family, but he was, he's always been the one who's like, even when, even at the worst times when we were like fighting a lot, he'd be like, I want to work through this with you. Like, hmm. you know. He's like, we might not agree now, but like, I want us to get to a point where we can like mm-hmm. move forward. Um, he made you feel comfortable. Not necessarily, but he just was like oh, the most vocal with me, mm-hmm. you know, like he'd be willing to be like, you know, to tell me honestly how he felt, which was not always like, didn't always feel great, mm-hmm. but at least I was like, I know you're being honest with me and we can talk about this stuff, you know? You appreciated his honesty. Yeah. And then, you know, I think for him, when uh, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed, it was like, it really changed his perspective. Because he was like, you know, as as a commander, as like someone who has a high rank in the in the military, you know, it's his responsibility to make sure that everything's running smoothly and like if people are being discriminated against or made to feel uncomfortable in any way because of their gender, their sexuality, their race, their religion. He's like, I'm not, I'm not having that. So I think that changed his perspective on like having a gay child. Mm-hmm. Um, How old were you when you came out? Oh God. 21, I guess. Mm. It was like <laughs> my BFA show in, in college was like, Oh God, the work is so bad. But the work was basically about, <laughs> me coming out mm-hmm. and I hadn't been out to my parents. Uh-huh. Like I was out that whole year to like my friends. And then I was like, well, I have to tell my parents cause they're going to see this work. And so I decided to do it like three days before my graduation, mm-hmm. which <laughs> was horrible timing. But did, did you think about it a lot like in advance or it was kind of just like, it just kind of came out? Oh yeah. No, no. I was like, well, so my last year of school, my dad was doing a remote a remote tour in Korea, and mm-hmm. my mom was living in Colorado. That's where she's from. So she was living in the small town in the mountains with her sister. Uh, and I wanted to tell my mom because I was seeing her a lot, but I was also like, I would rather tell my parents together. 
so my dad came back from Korea, like for my graduation and I, you know, he was home for like a week and I like literally last minute, like I was driving, I was up with my, at my mom's house and was driving back down to Boulder to like get ready for graduation, like two days later. And I was like, uh, we need to talk. And then we like had this big painful conversation. I was like, okay, I'm getting in the car. Bye. Mm. (laughs) It was like, it was really tough. It was tough. Yeah. Yeah. It was not fun. Did you dread doing it? Oh yeah. Yeah. For years. For years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, even coming out to my friends in college, everyone was like, yeah, no shit. Right. And I was like, (laughs) yeah, I was like, oh man, like I've been so scared to like tell anybody. And then, you know, Mm, so for you, it was like, no shit. It was like, of course you are. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, every like all of my friends, their reaction mm-hmm. was like, "Thank you for finally telling us." Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which, yeah, you know, it's funny looking back that I thought I was fooling anybody, but yeah, you know, did you like bring a few of them together and told them, or you told them like individually? All my friends, yeah. Uh, it kind of happened piecemeal. So, like, I lived in the city, in New York City, for the summer between my junior and senior year. Uh. And that's when I like came out. I was like, oh, hey, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, and a handful of my friends from college were living either in the city or were like from uh, the northeast. So they were nearby. So I'd see them a lot. And like, so I told like a handful of them one night we were like out at a friend's birthday party that happened to be at a gay bar. And I was like making out with some boy. And then I was like, I'm making out with a guy in the corner and like all my friends are over here. You know, and so I, I like sat down and I was like, guys, I'm gay. And they were like, no shit. <laughs> and we like did shots, you know. Uh, and then when I got back to, to school, it like, you know, slowly happened. Yeah. I want to get into your work uh, in a little bit, but I, but I think that maybe uh, going from there just to talking a bit about the history of gay life and gay culture is is Mm -hmm. important in terms of in terms of the context of your work and i wonder if you could just maybe talk about kind of where we came from and where we are today yeah you know it's tricky because like like we were talking about before we started this interview um you know this idea that like gay people were like really deeply closeted and repressed which is in a lot of ways true and then it was sort of like this sexual revolution and then everything like shut back down in the 80s when aids struck so uh, up until the the late 60s there was a tremendous amount of repression i mean there there was but it's also like so much more complicated than that Mm -hmm. um i'm I'm reading this uh this john cage uh biography now which mm -hmm. is great and uh talking about him and him and merce cunningham and i mean and just kind of describing that 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 period I, i don't know if it was in the the 40s or 50s where they they couldn't even live with each other I mean, yeah. they, they lived yeah. separately and it was like there there was a lot of fear that they could be, um, you know, they could be arrested. And yeah, in spite of that, there was still like there were communities that were kind of like hidden or, you know, there were like these closeted communities where like, you know, queer people would come together and they couldn't really be in the open about it. But there was like this rich culture that was happening. You know, you look at like George Platt Lyons pictures. Yeah. And those were things that he was making like throughout his whole career as a photographer. It never really showed anybody other than like his circle of friends. But those pictures, I think, speak to that. Even though things had to be hidden, even though there was a danger and there was like so much repression and fear, uh, that there was the ability to like express beauty and to like express the connections that exist between, you know, between gay men and 
specifically for his, his photos. Right. Um, so that's, I, I think that's one thing that I'm, I'm trying to, I mean, you know, it's like so hard to like really know what was happening like 60 years ago. We can only infer so much through reading and talking to people, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a complicated thing. And I think, you know, growing up as a, as a gay kid in the military family and like we lived overseas a lot. So I was kind of out of touch in terms of what was happening culturally, but I definitely remember as a kid, you know, growing up in the eighties and nineties, like hearing about AIDS and like seeing gay people demonized in the news or like whatever media as being sort of this group of people that they brought this disease upon themselves. Like you deserve it. You're sinners, you're filthy, you're, you know, Mm. pores, like all this stuff. So like that really had an impact on sort of my understanding of my sexuality for, I mean, for a long time, like it took a lot to get over that. Yeah. Um, And to see how, how skewed that is, you know? So you were just talking about this period where maybe with certain exceptions, there was a tremendous amount of repression and then the 70s comes along and for the first time, gay life is celebrated in a much more open and expressive way. There's a certain uh, hedonism in gay life that responded to the shame and repression that came before. Uh, someone like Peter Hujar's work speaks to that really well, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely think there was sort of that wild hedonistic side to gay life, you know, post Stonewall when like it just became not even safer necessarily, but like it seemed to be more urgent that like people were like, fuck this, we're coming out. This is who we are. Um, and like, I think that definitely led to people feeling more comfortable to like engage, you know, have sex with people, not have to necessarily always hide it or do it, you know, in these very shrouded ways. So that's why like, you know, the baths became more popular. They had always, they had already been like established as sort of like a cultural, you know, center for, for gay men. Um, and so, you know, there definitely was sort of a hedonistic quality to some of that, but I think it was also just like, finally we can like express ourselves, you know, we can like be with men. We can accept ourselves for, for who we are attracted to. Um, and, you know, you, you mentioned Peter Hujar, and I think that that is one thing that's so incredible about his work is just that it's, it, it looks so directly at, at the beauty that can exist between like, you know, gay people loving each other or the, this community that was forming, you know, the desires there, the, this idea that he's like trying to capture the quality that or like the feeling that occurs when you're having sex or when you're like really desire somebody. But one thing that's always drawn me to his work is that there's also this sort of underlying sadness. Um, and I think it stems probably, you know, from the, the trauma of growing up and existing in a, in a world where you're not accepted for who you are. Mm. Um, and so there's this balance, like night, I, I don't ever feel like one really like overtakes the other. They kind of exist in this like harmony that I think is really accurate to like sort of how our experience as gay people is even now, you know, it's like we, we have 
this ability to be out and to be proud and to celebrate and, you know, to fuck and whatever. But there is this history that is with us, that it permeates our culture and, you know, our, our communities, um, that really can't be ignored, you know? And I think it's something that actually like brings us together in a way because we can relate to one another about that and be like, you know, you're not alone in this. Like I, I, we've, I've experienced this too. And like where it kind of brings people together to be like, this is something that we can unite mm-hmm. around and against, you know? Yeah. I'm just, uh, I'm curious. You're, you're 34. Yeah. 34. I'm 32. So, um, I guess, you know, we, we grew up in, we were born in the eighties. Uh, you were born what, 80? 82. 82. And, uh, we we kind of lived through it, but we were we were really young when you know when 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 AIDS kind of happened, mm-hmm. and I guess I'm just curious about how you feel that our generation relates to all of that, and if people are really aware of of, of that history. Uh, I mean that, that's again like another thing that I think about all the time. I'm not I'm not totally sure. Uh, I I mean I feel like the people that I am close with that are like my age, you know, within like a couple of years, it seems to be like, we're more aware of it than maybe even people who are like five or six years younger. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's, it's kind of easy to forget, you know? I mean, like with like everyone's on prep now and it, it has definitely changed like our psychology around HIV and AIDS and like, who's at risk? Am I at risk? You know, it's sort of like, alleviated this fear that we've all kind of had I mean, that I've had like for my whole adult life as a sexual being being like, Oh my God, you know, every time I'd have sex with someone, I'd be like, what did I, what did I contract? Like, mm-hmm. did I just contract HIV? You know, there was always this paranoia and now that's sort of been alleviated. And I guess the fear is that people now are just like sort of forgetting or like choosing to forget about, mm-hmm. What came before, um, you know, I was accused in grad school of being unaware of that history one time in a critique. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> like, <laughs> how dare you say that to me? Was it accurate at all? Uh, no, I don't think so. So, I mean, and I didn't bring this up at the time. Um, but when I was in college, I started volunteering for this uh, camp called Birch Family Camp. That was uh, started in 1989, and it was four families who were affected by HIV and AIDS. So essentially, if anyone in the family was HIV positive or had had AIDS, the whole family would go to this camp campsite and have like summer camp for like a week. Um, and so I started doing that when I was 20, I guess. Mm-hmm. And at that point, that was the first time I, I had really interacted with and gotten to know people who were. HIV positive or had AIDS that I like knew, you know, that were out about it. Um, and through that experience, I, I, I really, it felt important for me to like understand that history. Cause growing again, like I said, growing up with this sort of view of, you know, as a gay person, like, Oh, I, maybe I deserve this or like, we deserve this. We brought it upon ourselves because we're told, you know, that you're sinners, you're evil, all the shit. Um, and also through camp, like it was when I met like a, a community of older gay men who had been volunteering for the camp for a long time because 
you know, growing up or like living in New York city at the height of the AIDS crisis that like, you know, they really lived it and were volunteering for this camp a lot of times because of their, their experiences, um, in the gay community in the city. So I felt like from a, you know, from a pretty young age, like I was, I was engaged and like curious to know and like wanted to, to learn about that. And it was something that was on my mind. So to be told that like, you have no understanding of this history was really offensive to me. Um, I think the work that I was making at the time was like not addressing that at all, but it wasn't even like really in my realm of thinking in terms of like how I could apply that to the work at at that point. So when, so when you got that, uh, when, when you were told that, mm-hmm. how did it affect the way you thought about oh, your work? And I mean, how did it, it affect like, your work? It totally changed the course, the trajectory. Like, I was so pissed when that panelist said that. But I used that, that anger to be like, I will never, <laughs> like, if somebody ever accuses me of that again, I will be ready to be like, you know what? You're totally wrong, and here are the reasons why. So that was at the end of my first semester. And then over that, like Chris winter break, I bought all these books You know, I read Giovanni's room. Uh, mm. what other books did I get? I just started like, I was like, I need to like throw myself into researching and understanding not just what happened in the eighties and nineties, but like, you know, going back you know, into like the forties, fifties, uh, just to get a better grasp of that. And then, that was sort of like the next semester trying to figure out how to really bring that into the work. Um, and over the summer after my first year, I read uh, fire in the belly, the David Wojnarowicz uh, biography. And then I immediately got all of his books and read them. And that was like really the turning point where I was, where it shifted my understanding of why I was making art and like what I should be making art about or like, you know, the role that I could have as an artist, not just to make like things for myself, but to make things that could potentially affect other people and bring people together or like empower someone to be like, Oh, like this person also, I relate to this in some way. And Mm -hmm. that maybe having some sort of, you know, uh, effect on them and how they exist in the world. So what was it that you wanted to that you wanted to describe or articulate in the work? After yeah, after, after that a, point. No, well, no, no. I mean, after kind of coming to that realization. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think it the work that I was making, I was sort of resisting making work. I, I kind of went back and forth between like making work that was like about my experience as a gay man in in my community. And then making work that was sort of like this really shrouded, like looking at things sideways instead of looking at the thing directly, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. And I think reading about Wojnarowicz and reading his writing, uh, it shifted my understanding of what like political or socially conscious art could look like. I think I had a very narrow uh, understanding of like what, you know, that type of work could look like, you know, I think of like protest art as having like words, a lot of text being like mm-hmm. very pointed and like literal, there's literal, there's no other way to interpret this other than what you're seeing. Yeah. And how he would talk about being an artist was, you know, this idea that 
expressing something private in a public way, either through writing, speaking, visual art, that has the, the, the potential to, like I said, bring people together around a, a common understanding and like these, these small sort of like chipping away at the status quo can, can have a, a deep impact. So it became less about like, oh, this work has to be like overtly political in order to be political, to be political. And then I started to, you know, think about <clears> like, <throat> like George Platt Lyons and Peter Hujar and even like Dan Arbus, you know, like just the, the act of like making these pictures and showing something that like we tends to be ignored or hidden is a very powerful political statement, mm. you know? Um, so then that's, that's kind of what I was sort of moving forward from that point. And also at that point, trying to think of like how I could represent all this history, represent all this, you know, all these feelings that I was having about understanding that history into a, into a visual form, you know? This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I guess I wonder how you think about the the line between uh, images just being libidinous or sexy for sexy's sake and um, and work transcending that and being political or even being art. Mm. It's tricky and it's complicated. I don't know if I totally have it figured out. It's, you know, it's like that idea when it's like, uh, how'd that asshole describe porn? Like, I don't know how to describe porn, but I know it when I see it. Mm. It's kind of that, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I hate to use that analogy, but it's similar to that mentality. I mean, I think it's, it, our culture is so strange in the fact that like everything is kind of hypersexualized but then we're afraid to like actually talk about or deal with sex or desire or, you know, who's allowed to be looked at as sexy or to express their sexuality. Um, so I think in the work, you know, I try to allow the people that I'm photographing to feel beautiful or feel sexy or feel safe to kind of express that with me. And I feel like very honored that people are willing to do that mm-hmm. for my photographs. And I don't necessarily think that they're like, it's bad to make work that is like heavily sexual or, you know, libidinous, whatever for me, I, I, that's very present in the work, but I want it to be kind of complicated by, by other things that come into it. You know, it's, for a while I was being questioned a lot. Like, why are you making these pictures? Why do you, you know, what it being questioned sort of like my role in like enacting these photos that are sexual and, uh, directly looking at, at desire. And then as I, you know, I've been working in this mode for a few years now, uh, 
I feel like oftentimes the people that are being photographed, they're like getting something out of it. Like they're, you know, like I said, they're being allowed to kind of express the side of themselves that maybe they can't always, or, you know, it's like this idea of being looked at and being looked at as desirable can be fulfilling in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, and so that's kind of like how, how I think about it. It's like, I'm, I'm getting something out of these interactions by having the photographs, but I hope that, you know, when I'm photographing the, my subjects or my participants, that they are getting something in return. Once you take someone's photo, do you keep in touch at all? Do you, do you send them prints? Uh, I haven't really sent, I mean, I sometimes send people prints if I photograph them multiple times, just as like a thank you. You know, it depends. Like sometimes I keep in touch. Like, I mean, I've met, like we're sitting next to this picture of Phil. I met him years ago on scruff and he wanted to be photographed and we've become really good friends. Mm. Um, there are some people where I'll like run into them occasionally or like I'll send them a text every once in a while just to check in. Uh, and there's some people like I meet them, photograph them, send them the pictures and then never hear from them again. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really, it, it varies in that, but I, you know, it's, I, and this might sound really corny, but I do feel like when I photograph people, like, I often leave the photo shoot feeling like kind of floored, like emotionally, like just like something was exchanged between, you know, myself and the, the people or person that I was photographing that feels really powerful. Mm. And so I want that to be present somehow in, in the photographs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't really, I don't really know how to put it into words, like what that feeling is, but mm-hmm. it feels enriching, you know? Yeah. One of the things that I love about your pictures, well, there's there's lots that I love about your pictures. <laughs> there's uh, go on. <laughs> <laughs> I know you hate this. I just hate getting compliments. Well, first of all, there's um, a very personal and interesting sense of male beauty mm-hmm. that really comes through. There's also a real, um, a very idiosyncratic quality to your pictures. Like your fo- you you photograph gay men. Uh-huh. Um, in in uh, sexual situations or in sexual lights, but they're, the pictures are very, uh, they're all different. They're all very idiosyncratic. And I wonder if you could just talk about just how you work in your process and, and maybe what you're after. It's good to hear that the pictures all feel different because I always have this paranoia that it's like, oh God, I'm just making the same picture over and over again. Like, you know. Yeah. You know, I'm interested in in looking at all different types of bodies and definitions of of what can be considered beautiful you know um i'm not really interested in in photographing like you know adonises who have like perfect quote-unquote bodies um i think the way that i started to use lighting became sort of this way for me to establish a mood or a tone that like alludes to this other presence or this larger history. You know, I talk a lot about how this history of our community like permeates my life. And like a lot of the people that I, you know, am close to and photograph. So like using lighting in a way to kind of create that because it is something that's so, I mean, it's, it's huge. Like how can you understand that or like put it into a physical form so that that's sort of been the way that I've approached that um and I want you know I I'm like I want 
the sexuality and the desire to be at the forefront of the work. Cause I, there's no point in hiding it, you know, mm-hmm. but I hope that there's something more complicated behind that. Uh, other than just like, Oh, this, this boy is like a babe. Mm. <laughs> you know. Well, definitely. I mean, to, from, for me, that definitely comes through. And as you're, as you're talking and, and I'm thinking about the like desire, I think I'm, I'm thinking about not only the, physical or or sexual desire but i'm also Mm. thinking about just the more of an artistic desire Mm. that really kind of comes through too there's a um a strangeness and an offness to all of your pictures and and manifested in different kinds of ways that i think is really uh is really great i almost see it as something as just like uh something you're always trying to to kind of figure out and work with and play with yeah i mean i love photography like you know like and so when i i think for a while i've sort of learned to embrace this idea of like sometimes i just want to make a picture that is like photographically stunning Mm. you know like the picture of paul with the like water droplets yeah and his like you know he's got like the goose flesh on his arm and then the way the the water droplets like turn into this like spray of like glitter almost. And it becomes this magical moment. And that's like something that is very unique and specific to photography, you know, like how a photograph looks. And so I'm always like, that's always, you know, what I'm after in terms of like a formal quality in the pictures. There's that Deanne Arbus quote where she says uh, something about like the more, Seeker is like a secret. The more it tells you, the less you know. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So like this idea of like, if you look at a picture and like you have all the answers, then it's like, okay, next you sort of move on. Right. But if you walk away from a picture and you're like kind of haunted by it or you're like, I don't really quite understand or I have all these questions like that has always been what's powerful in looking at photographs for me. So I want my work to also be infused with that, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And it's not a matter of being like, unclear in your purpose but it's like you present this singular photo or a group of photos and does it all add up to like a perfectly you know definable quantifiable idea or is it like quantifiable is that did i use that in the wrong way (laughs) i I mean just this idea i feel like there's sometimes this this tendency uh and i think today with a lot of photography it's like it sort of points at something yeah. and it's like you pointed it and there it is and that's it. And there's really not a, not a lot of room to like go further beyond that or, or to like question it or to like want to ask more questions. So that is something that I, I strive for in, in my own work. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, know. you have a big exhibition coming up at La Mama Galleria in New York. Tell me about it. So it's my first solo show. Wow. Which I'm excited about. That's <laughs> uh-huh. super exciting. It is exciting. Uh, it's slightly terrifying too, uh-huh. but uh, when I got into grad school, my friend Curran, I was like so excited, but hor- like horrified. I was just like, "Oh my god, what did I just get myself into?" And he's like, "Nothing is as terrifying as getting what you want." Mm-hmm. So I've been thinking about <laughs> that a lot lately. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the show is called "Some Small Fever," um, and I pulled the title from a David Voynerovich piece. Um, it's one of his written works where he is talking about walking through this like 
sex store, like porn shop. Um, and there's this video playing and everything is cast in this blue light because of the like shitty transfer. Uh, and I can't think of the direct quote off the top of my head, but he's describing what's happening in this porn. And when the guy comes, he talks about the, the, his ejaculate, like going across the screen in this like pale blue as if in some small fever. Mm-hmm. And so I started thinking about that, like in terms of my work, how I want everything to kind of exist in this mysterious realm or like this other sort of undefinable space and how that kind of reminds me of like a fever dream. And so the show is work that I've been making since I left grad school. And in a lot of ways, it's kind of like an aspirational show for how I want my work to be moving forward. Uh, because since I finished school, I was pretty much exclusively making nudes. Mm-hmm. And then over the past like eight or nine months, I've been making work in other ways. Um, how so? Uh, well, so when I was in school, it was kind of, I got this criticism of like, I was making work on the street. I was making, you know, these intimate portraits and nudes. And I got this, you know, criticism. One of the panelists was like, oh, you know, I hate it when photographers try to show me their whole world. Like what would happen if you just focused on one thing or just like make all the work that you want to make, but then how do they exist as these separate bodies? So I was like, I never really, that's, I'll take that challenge. Um, But then I think I kind of like got myself backed into a corner where I was like, what am I like, am I doing this now just because it's like what I am expected to do, what I expect of myself. And I also just missed like making pictures in different settings. Um, So like I was in Fire Island over the summer, I made a lot of work there. There's a picture in the show from Fire Island. Um, uh, So my friend and classmate El Perez and I uh, just started this project recently working, uh, making pictures in like queer nightlife spaces. Mm. And so this is something that L has been doing for a while. Uh, but we were talking after the shootings happened at pulse, there was like a long period where I was just like, I don't really know how to deal with this in my work. And then L and I started talking and it was sort of like, Oh duh. Like maybe I should go make pictures like in gay bars. Yeah. Uh, so L and I started talking about, you know, collaborating and maybe having uh, it turn into some sort of publication. And there, there are pictures from that in the show. And I think just what I realized now that I've sort of like given myself the freedom to, to make work again in different ways is that it all kind of exists in the same piece, you know, like making a picture in a nightclub. I think of, you know, gay bars and like queer, queer bars as these, spaces that we've created for ourselves as sanctuaries, you know, mm-hmm. and it is like sort of like removing ourselves from a lot of the bullshit that we deal with as gay people, as queer people. And it can be very healing. I think there's a lot of like this potential and magic that exists in those spaces where it's like, who am I going to meet tonight? Like, you know, mm-hmm. am I going to meet like a, you know, my future partner? Am I going to meet like some hot babe that I'm going to like have a one night stand with? Am I going to like, dance with some beautiful, amazing, you know, fierce people. There's, it's just like, it feels really, it's a powerfully charged space. And so making pictures in a, in like a nightclub and then making pictures, um, of men in their apartments. I want their, that same sort of quality of potential and magic to exist in the picture. So 
it feels very recent that I've been bringing like sequencing the pictures together in that way. And this show feels like a satisfying start to that. And now it kind of is giving me the motivation to move forward and continue branching out or like allowing the pictures to be amorphous, I guess. Have you been working with hell? Have you guys been, uh, you guys share work as you go? So we're really kind of, uh, we applied for this grant. We should find out if we're going to be getting that money soon. I hope we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really, you know, I've been working on my own. Elle's been working on their own. Um, and I, over the spring and summer, we want to like take some road trips together and, you know, go to different cities, go to some smaller towns. You know, I mean, like I mostly shoot in New York and LA, uh, which are very specific you know, the the gay and queer community in big cities like New York and LA are a specific thing and other parts of the country, you know, the community looks and feels very different. So uh, we were interested in kind of seeing what, you know, what potential that has in, in traveling to other places. Uh, L went to undergrad in Baltimore and was making a lot of pictures there. Um, you know, we'd like to go to Orlando. We'd like to go, to new Orleans. Um, and there's other places that, you know, we're, we're kind of like have this loose idea of like finding gay communities or like, you know, the, the, the one gay bar that like people come to from all over, like in, in smaller, smaller cities and towns and working in that way. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm really stoked about it just cause it's a new way to work, but also L is like, one of my favorite human beings, but also one of my favorite artists. Mm. Uh, so I think the dynamic of like seeing what they're making will, you know, push me to, to, to improve my pictures and like push deeper into, into why we're, we're why we're doing this project. Sounds great. Yeah. Really excited to, uh, to see what you guys oh, come I, up with. <laughs> me too. No, it should, it's, it's going to be good. Well, being an artist is, uh, is a really difficult thing practically. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean, me uh, you know, you, you f- forget about the actual figuring out how to make work and, you know, and, and how to figure out your, your artistic self. But then there's also just the more practical aspects like supporting yourself and, uh, and making money. And, um, and I'm curious about how you do that. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it, since I finished grad school in 2015, that's been a huge source of anxiety and struggle because, before I went to grad school, I was always working full time and then like making art when I could. And that has like in, inverted itself, you know? Mm-hmm. So like my primary goal is like making work and structuring my life in a way that I can make work, you know, have the freedom to like go to California for two weeks and shoot if I want to or need to. Um, and so when I, soon after I left school, um, uh, I got a job working for Chuck Close as one of his studio assistants, mm. uh, which has been great. You know, he's very generous. Um, my schedule is flexible. And when I started working for him, you know, he said, like, I want you to be able to make your own work. I'm not going to hire you and make you, like, like take over your life, basically. And I was like, oh, that's good to hear because I don't, <laughs> I don't think I've ever <laughs> had a boss, like, say something like that to me. <laughs> and, you know, and he and I have talked about this idea of like, I sometimes feel like the work that I'm making is not really, I don't know, in like the, the, 
the like stream of what a lot of the conversation around photography is right now. And Chuck relates to that, you know, he, he was making portraits at a time when uh, abstraction and conceptualism and minimalism were at the height of, you know, that's all anyone was like really talking about. And he was making portraits, mm. you know, and like the conviction to like stick with that through his whole career and be like, this is what I care about and I'm going to do it no matter what. And so that's been, that's yeah. been helpful too. just be like, all right, fuck it. Trusting it, trusting that conviction yeah, you have yeah. and just kind of like, going you know, for it. Things circle around, but like, I'm not super interested in just like making work to be like on the like pulse of what is like cool or trendy. Um, you know, so it, that, that, that helps. <laughs> it helps to hear, to hear somebody <laughs> else say that. Yeah. You know, totally. Um, yeah. Thanks a lot for having me here. Oh, absolutely. It's my pleasure. Pleasure. Come see the show. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Thank you, man. That was my conversation with Bryson Rand. His show, Some Small Fever, at La Mama Galleria in New York, opens April 13th and runs till May 13th. This episode was produced by me, Jordan Weitzman, and was edited by Crystal Duhame. Music in this episode by Poddington Bear, Michelle Macklem, Damien Lazarus, and The Monks. To find out more about this interview series, visit us at magichourpodcast.org and follow us on Facebook and Instagram, where we'll keep you up to date. I'm Jordan Weitzman, and thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.